Alzheimer's disease is the sixth leading cause of death in the country. But researchers and drug companies are making progress on preventing and treating the disease. In just the past month, Indianapolis-based Eli Lilly announced one of its drugs has successfully targeted a sticky protein linked to Alzheimer's, reducing the disease's progression by 34%. Researchers from Indiana University have also found evidence that the disease might be treatable when people are younger than scientists previously thought. I'm Bob Zaltzberg of the Herald Times, and today on Noon Edition, we'll speak with experts from around the region about new developments in Alzheimer's care and research. And we invite you to join the conversation after this hour's news. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with my co-host, Mary Catherine Carmichael. And more than 5 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's disease in the United States, including 110,000 Hoosiers. Researchers and drug companies are making a lot of progress uh, on preventing and treating the disease, which affects an individual's ability to remember, think, and plan. Indianapolis-based Eli Lilly recently announced one of its drugs has successfully targeted a sticky protein linked to Alzheimer's, reducing the disease's progression by 34%. Researchers from Indiana University have also found evidence that the disease might be treatable when people are younger than scientists previously thought. Today on Noon Edition, we're going to talk about the strides in Alzheimer's research, treatment, and care with four guests. Three are in the studio with us, and one is joining us by phone. We have Kelly Litzter uh, and Lauren Leib. Uh, Kelly is a program specialist, and Lauren is development specialist. They're both with the Alzheimer's Association uh, of Greater Indianapolis, uh, Greater Indianapolis chapter. Dr. Shannon Rissischer is with us. She is the assistant research professor with the Indiana University School of Medicine Alzheimer's Disease Center. And joining us by phone from Indianapolis is Phyllis Farrell. She is global brand development leader, Eli Lilly, global Alzheimer's disease platform team. If you want to join the program today, give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348. And you can join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. And you can also follow us on Twitter at noon edition. So as, uh, as usual... We've put together quite a panel today. We're happy to have all of you with us, and uh, we want to get right into the topic. I'm going to go first to, to Phyllis Farrell, who's in Indianapolis. Uh, Phyllis, the, the recent, um, uh, I guess, news from Lilly was pretty exciting. Can you explain what all, uh, what all that, that means? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me today. Um, we're real excited about how far Alzheimer's research has come. Um, even in the last several years, Lilly has been researching Alzheimer's for about 26 years now. And um, the data that you're referring to is our um, latest stage asset, which is an antibody called solanezumab. And solanezumab is an um, antibody that when, um, it, when it enters the body, it actually helps clear the amyloid that is floating around in the brain and that can cause these sticky clumps. Sometimes you might have heard about something called amyloid plaques as one of the potential causes of Alzheimer's disease. And this particular drug helps the body clear that sticky stuff that's floating around in your brain and could potentially cause neuronal injury. 
Um, a couple of years ago, we released some data from some early studies of that drug that showed that um, the drug actually slowed the progression of the disease by 34%. Unfortunately, due to the trial design, the primary endpoints weren't met. So we've continued to research that drug, both following those original patients as well as starting an additional phase three study. The data that you um, are referring to that was just recently uh, released by the Alzheimer's Association at their international conference actually followed those patients that were originally on the drug for an additional two years. And what that data showed was both that the benefit of solanezumab continued, um, but also that there was a real difference between the patients that had started solanezumab at first versus being on placebo in the first part of the study, um, and those placebo patients were basically given solanezumab later, and they never caught up to the benefit of those patients that started solanezumab treatment earlier. And so I think this is a really important thing for us to know as an Alzheimer's research field, but also in terms of clinical practice because what it says is that this new generation of drugs needs to be started as early as possible in order to make sure that those sticky amyloid plaques that can build up 10, 15 years, even before the symptoms show in a patient, that you're actually clearing that out as soon as possible and making sure that it doesn't cause the neuronal injury that could potentially cause Alzheimer's disease. It's a, a really good segue to, to Dr. Rissischer because uh, your research, as I understand it, is trying to identify this earlier. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I work in the Department of Radiology at Indiana University, and we use a number of different techniques, um, neuroimaging techniques, to detect the disease earlier, even in asymptomatic individuals. Um, my work that was recently published was actually looking at a group of individuals that we call subjective cognitive decline, which is a group that feels that their memory has changed, mm -hmm. but they actually don't show any memory deficits when we test them formally. And we found in the study that these people who were had subjective cognitive decline and carried a risk uh, genetic allele for Alzheimer's disease, the APOE4 allele, showed them much higher amyloid burden in their brain, the sticky plaques that she was talking about. And it's notable that these people are, are not symptomatic. They don't show any memory deficits, but they do feel like their memory is slipping, which makes me um, think that doctors need to take this kind of thing into account when an older adult comes into the clinic and says, look, I'm really slipping. And even if they test normal, that doesn't necessarily mean they are normal. So it sounds like uh, I, I know that uh, traditionally it's been difficult to diagnose someone with Alzheimer's, and it's and, and correct me if I have this wrong, but sometimes they say you, we really can't diagnose it until after the person is deceased, and and we do an autopsy. Um, so progress is being made along those lines. It sounds like yeah, progress is being made. Um, in being able to detect people early, um, we can see the amyloid plaque on a PET scan um, in people, and, and they've done studies in people who are even asymptomatic, even you know in their 50s and 60s, mm -hmm. showed some of this plaque, um, and so that will help us to determine whether or not somebody has a high likelihood of progressing to Alzheimer's disease, as people who are asymptomatic and carry this protein do show a higher rate of progression. All right, I want to get back to, to some of these and drill a little deeper in these, but I want to bring in Laura and Kelly. Lauren and Kelly first, and I believe I, I misidentified uh, your, your organization, the Alzheimer's Association Greater Indiana Chapter. I apologize for that. Um, could you tell us what, what the chapter does and what each of your roles are? Right. So the Alzheimer's Association is actually a national organization, but then every state has a chapter and some states have multiple chapters. So we're the Greater Indiana chapter and we serve 73 counties in the state. And we provide care and support to those affected by Alzheimer's disease. It's a huge part of our mission. And we also fund a lot of Alzheimer's research as well. So we're really kind of dual focused in our mission of really focusing on the care and support, but also working towards finding either a way to prevent Alzheimer's disease or a way to eventually cure Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. So, so we, you're a not-for-profit organization. Right. Uh -huh. We definitely are. Mm -hmm. And that was Kelly. Yes. Okay. 
Um, yeah, so what we try to do at the Alzheimer's Association is we say we are full mission. So my role in the Bloomington area and the southern region is as a development specialist to manage the walks in the area. And these walks are our largest fundraiser that help go towards the education and support that we provide within the community, as well as the research that's being done um, within the Alzheimer's realm. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I want to go back to, to uh, Dr. Rissischer, and I believe um, also uh, Phyllis Farrell may be able to, to address this too, but I think there's, I, I won't speak for others, I have some confusion about Alzheimer's versus dementia, what, you know, what different levels there might be, what the progression might be. So um, Alzheimer's is a type of dementia. So dementia is sort of a or overarching category where there are multiple types. Alzheimer's is the most common. Um, Alzheimer's disease typically progresses through some symptomatic stages which are not as severe as dementia. We call this mild cognitive impairment. And usually this means that you have a cognitive impairment, often in memory, but it can be in other domains as well. As, um, and it puts you at much higher risk for progressing to Alzheimer's disease, but you're not yet demented. You're able to generally take care of yourself, um, maybe not do complex tax- tasks, but able to do most things. But it does give you a higher risk of progression with 5 to 10% of people per year progressing to Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the uh, protein that you, met, that you mentioned, and forgive me, I, what the name of the protein again is? Amyloid. 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 Okay. That is something you can get tested for the levels, yes? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, I'll, I'll answer that one. Okay. So um, there are a couple of different ways to determine where you, whether you have amyloid um, in your brain, amyloid plaque in your brain. And actually, you were correct in your statement that, um, you know, up until recently, you couldn't actually confirm a diagnosis of Alzheimer's until autopsy mm-hmm. or a brain biopsy. And as you can imagine, there's not a lot of living people who are willing to subject themselves <laughs> yeah, to Yeah, the line biopsy. to sign up so, for that is pretty short. <laughs> yeah, so, so actually, most of the time on death certificates, it will say probable Alzheimer's mm-hmm. disease. Mm-hmm. So um, there are some tests that you can use with cerebral spinal fluid. They're a little clunky, so that is, you know, that's literally getting a uh, spinal tap and pulling cerebral spinal fluid from the lumbar puncture and, and sending that off and having it tested by a lab. However, um, about three years ago, um, in conjunction, actually, we work very, very closely with, um, with IU um, Health on this particular asset as well as some other organizations, um, Lily had the first um, imaging agent by the name of Amavid, that was approved by the FDA. And this is an agent that basically, um, it's, uh, it's a chemical that binds to the amyloid plaque in the brain. So it's injected into a patient, they wait a few minutes, 15 to 20 minutes, and then they get a PET scan done. And what happens is that, um, that agent that you've injected in, that you know, radio pharmaceutical agent that you've injected in the body, it basically lights up on the picture mm-hmm. and can see that you can see the plaque. So the top, the stop, the, the study that Dr. Richler is talking about is one that uses an agent like that. It may actually use Amavid, but um, it, um, it allows you to see the plaque in the brain without having to go in and do something invasive like a brain biopsy. Um, it's available on the market today. Okay. I, I want to also ask about the progression of the disease. When you talk about because when you're, you're talking about it, uh, it reduces the disease's progression by 34%. I mean, that's a number. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's kind of hard, you know, it's hard to to really understand what that means. Does that mean if it starts, um, you know, at age 60 that, you know, you're going to have another two good years or you know what I'm saying? Right. So um, the the answer that we were starting to talk about on dementia, I think is important. You'd ask the, qu- the question about how do you progress? through the stages of the illness. And typically the difference between just a cognitive impairment and a dementia um, is that functional compromise that uh, that your physician was talking about, which is when a patient is then not able to do things for themselves. That could be something, you know, pretty significant like bathing or eating, but it could also be something like driving or balancing your checkbook or, or handling your calendar and appointments. At that point when that you know, your functional life is impaired, that's really that definition of dementia. 
uh, Alzheimer's is one form of that. I think it's about 70% of the cases of um, dementia are, are believed to be Alzheimer's or Alzheimer's pathology. So as a patient moves through those stages, um, even what we would call mild Alzheimer's disease, which is the study that we did that showed the 34%, if you were interacting with that person, if that was your loved one or a friend, you would not see that patient in the words mild. Mild is not the word you would use because at that point that person is mildly demented and therefore unable to care for themselves on some of those you know, higher functioning tasks. So the study that we did, that 34% slowing, is only in that patient population. And basically, it's a measure of um, how their cognitive impairment was different after 18 months on drug. So the big difference between um, these next generation of molecules that are being studied right now and the ones that are on the market today is they actually have the opportunity or potentially have the ability to slow the underlying progression of the disease. So we measured 34% at 18 months. I can't extrapolate for you outside of that 18-month period, Mm -hmm. but in that 18-month period, basically someone who was on drug had an additional six months of function over the patients that were in the placebo group. Okay. uh, You know, I I think there are a lot of listeners out there that probably had some exposure and experience with this disease. Um, So hopefully you're going to learn a lot today and you can also call and help us do some of the learning and teaching in here. You can join the discussion at at, uh, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join a live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So with Kelly and Lauren, you, you work with a lot of families, I'm sure, and, and that, you know, this is, uh, you know, the, the disease is called the long goodbye, and, you know, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, what it does to families. Could you talk a little bit about, um, you know, what, when you hear talk about what, what's going on at Lilly and what's going on at IU, I mean, what kind of hope that gives you? I think it gives a lot of people hope. It's really exciting because there hasn't been a lot of, you know, groundbreaking developments like this. And so I think it really gives a lot of families, a lot of people with Alzheimer's disease hope for the future, which is so important. Um, I talk to people every day on our 24-7 helpline. It's 800-272-3900. People can call that number and ask any questions they have about the disease or about local resources, um, which is a huge source of support to people. But I talk to people every day um, on that line and also in person as well. I do a lot of in-person education programs talking to family caregivers. And any progress that we can make in this area, I think, is incredibly important because other conditions Um, have gotten a lot of attention and a lot of funding that's really been lacking with Alzheimer's disease. So funding and participation in clinical trials is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. And we have a program at the Alzheimer's Association called Trial Match, and it's basically a national clinical trial matching service. So you can visit our website at alc.org slash indiana and find information on Trial Match. Or you can actually call our helpline again at 800-272-3900 and press 1, and then you can sign up for trial match over the phone. But basically, you just answer, I think it's about 15 questions, and they want people with Alzheimer's disease, people with mild cognitive impairment, um, and also people with healthy brains as well, maybe people that have had a family history of dementia or Alzheimer's disease, and they really want to kind of look more into that. And then at the end of your phone call or at the end of the survey, it shows you what clinical trials there are available in your area that you could be eligible to participate in. We're a huge funder of Alzheimer's research, but we're not going to make any progress unless we have people participating in clinical trials. That's Mm -hmm. a huge part of um, what we do as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I know that when I'm out in the community, I have a lot of people who will come up to me and say, you know, oh, my aunt had Alzheimer's or my dad has Alzheimer's. And it's like everybody knows someone who has it, has had it, or will have it. And it's such... Mm -hmm. um, 
a devastating disease that unfortunately is more prevalent and we're seeing a lot more of. But I think that um, movies like Still Alice and um, things like that are really getting it into pop culture and the media and giving the exposure to Alzheimer's that it needs and deserves. Okay. For so long, Alzheimer's was something that nobody talked about. You know, it was very hush-hush. We don't talk about, you know, crazy Aunt Sue. That's not the case anymore. You know, we don't say things like that. It's becoming more, um, we're raising more awareness, but there's still a long road ahead of us and there's a lot of work still left to do. You know, one of the reasons I asked the question about Alzheimer's and dementia is because, you know, my mother was in a memory care unit in an assisted living facility for the last two, two and a half years of her life. And, you know, we never had her tested in any way. It was some kind of a dementia, but I remember visiting there uh, you know, m- many, many, many times, and the people who were in there were at various levels, and but I saw the same people every week, and and th- there's usually no recognition, but still they were people and they were friendly, most, some of the time. Mm-hmm. It was just it was an interesting experience, and I think as you said, so many people go through something like that, they don't know exactly what it is. Right. It's a, you know the definitions are are kind of different, so. And this is Phyllis again. You know, first of all, I'm I'm sorry with what you had to go through with your family, but you were right when you said that, you know, really you, it's very difficult to find someone who hasn't had some sort of exposure experience um, to this illness. It, this isn't a, what we would call an orphan disease. And um, one of the things that I think our governments are realizing with the aging baby boomers, um, and this is around the world, that if we don't do something about this disease and we don't do something about it quickly, it's not just going to cripple individual families, but it's going to cripple our overall health care system. So we partner um, really significantly with the Alzheimer's Association nationally and and are very, very close partners with the Indiana chapter. Um, They just do fantastic work, fantastic work of reaching out into the community and making sure that the awareness has increased, the stigma has decreased. Um, I can't say enough for um, their ability to help connect people with clinical trials. It's true. The number one thing that is slowing us down right now in research is actually the number of patients that are in clinical trials. And um, so you need so their more. trial match solution is just fantastic. Mm-hmm. And they're offering hope for people. You know, sometimes a clinical trial is something that, you know, at least can provide some hope to a family. Mm-hmm. All right. We have a phone call from uh, Guy. And Guy's here in Bloomington. Hey, go ahead, Guy. Very good. Thank you. Um, I'm, of course, concerned with Alzheimer's, as everybody is. I'm 70 or turning 70 next month. Uh, my father, uh, when he was younger, and he's now dead, said, if, if I ever get so, you, I don't, nobody can, I'm no good anymore. Just hit me on the side of the head, would you please? And I said, no, Dad, <laughs> I won't do that. But if, as I do, I don't want treatment. I want to be allowed to die. Um, as comfortably as I can, if I reach a point that I certainly, if I reach a point I don't know my family and my loved ones and have have gravely reduced uh, cognitive function, what are my choices? Great question. But do you have an answer for that? Oh. Doctor, I'm going to put you on the spot. Well, um, you know, most of the treatments that we're talking about on on this um, program that you know that Phyllis was talking about are actually somewhat prevent are likely to be preventative treatments. Uh-huh. So they're treatments that you would take if you were at risk, maybe before, maybe when your memory starts to change, or or um, you know even if you're asymptomatic. Um, to not get Alzheimer's disease. Um, Once you have Alzheimer's disease, um, you know, the treatment options are more limited at this point. Hopefully these medications will be be helpful for those people. Um, But I think that's something that you have to, you know, talk to your family about and make sure that it's clear to them what you want your final days to be like. Um, You know, the, the only person... You know, the, the people who are going to be making those decisions for you are your family members or a trusted friend. Um, and it, I think it's important to be clear with them now 
about what it is that you want for your final days if that was to happen? Yeah, I mean, I th- with Guy, I would think you could go to your attorney and and uh, write something. Um, you know, certainly there are health care directives that can be um, uh, put together and, you know, request palliative care only. Mm-hmm. And also, um, Dr. Rissacher, you, you were mentioning, you know, the, the earlier detection. I mean, is this something that can Guy just seek that, seek uh, some sort of a a test? Well, right now it's still somewhat in a research stage, um, but there actually are trials and research projects ongoing for asymptomatic people, particularly if they have a family history um, in which they can enroll into trials um, with one, one notable trial is called the A4 trial, and it is for asymptomatic individuals who have amyloid on one of these PET scans, and they actually are using solanezumab um, the lily compound to see whether that prevents progression of the disease. Mm-hmm. So even for him, going on to something like trial match um, could potentially lead him to a place where he might get some more information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can actually go to um, www.a4study.org and look by state as to where those um, clinical trial sites are. Actually, IU is one of those clinical trial sites. and. Um, that is a, a very interesting study that Lilly has partnered with the National Institutes of, Hate, of Health, I'm sorry, the National Institute on Aging, or the, which is a sub, subdivision of the, the NIH. And um, it's a wonderful project where basically the government and Lilly have come together with some key academic researchers, um, including at IU, to, to look and see if there is a way to prevent the onset of these symptoms. And so if that's something that Guy or any of your listeners would be interested in doing, I would, I would um, encourage them to look that up and go speak with um, the investigator in their area, make sure they understand, obviously, the risks of participating in a clinical trial, but see if that's something that might be interesting in, to them. It's, it's those kinds of studies that are going to allow us to hopefully have a, a time where, Guy, you don't have to worry about what you're talking about anymore. And that's not that we're going to cure Alzheimer's disease once the symptoms are already there, mm-hmm. but that we can actually identify who those people are at risk and slow down the disease enough that um, that really debilitating dementia, you know, doesn't come. That's that's the hope and vision that, that we have for our future. So it's really more about quality of life than cure. Yeah, it's about slowing the progression. I think it's really important for people to know that um, these next generation of drugs are not going to take someone who's already compromised in terms of their memory and function and turn that around. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's not like taking an infection and fixing it. Mm -hmm. Once those neurons have been lost, those memories are lost, and, um, and you can't necessarily turn that around. What you can do and what our intention to do is to do is to slow down the progression by catching it early enough that, um, that really you can continue to live your life in your retired age, your retirement age as you had planned, that that debilitating functional impairment never comes. We're discussing the recent uh, progress, recent strides in Alzheimer's disease um, research, treatment, and care here on Noon Edition today. Uh, You're listening to uh, NPR. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org.
Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. Today we're discussing recent strides in Alzheimer's research, treatment, and care with four guests, three in the studio and one on the phone. Kelly Litster and Lauren Lay are both here. They are from the Alzheimer's Association, Alzheimer's Association Greater Indiana Chapter. They're both here with us today in the studio. Dr. Shannon Ritzischer is with us. She's assistant research professor with the Indiana University School of Medicine Alzheimer's Disease Center in Indianapolis. And also Phyllis Farrell is joining us by phone from Indianapolis. She's global brand development leader, Eli Lilly Global Alzheimer's Disease Platform Team. If you have questions or comments, give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the local calling area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So we have a phone call from Randy from Bloomington. Go ahead, Randy. Yes. Uh, my question is, uh, you know, in this our day of age, everything that we do uh, come up with as far as medical issues, um you know, there's always maybe some drugs, some kind of uh, uh, new uh, experimental drug. My mother has been under the uh, the medications for Alzheimer's. She's treated with the uh, uh, with the medications, and uh, and I've often wondered. She was a she is a or she's retired. She's in her 80s, and she was a, a professional uh, in the banking business. And it was a very highly stressful job. She dealt with people and her finances and her problems. You know, I watched her, you know, put in 35 years in the banking business. And I oftentimes wonder if somehow when, you know, she started forgetting what day it is, what month it is, and stuff like that, how much the environment, the the stress of our everyday living may have to do with... uh, with the condition of the mild atrophy of the of the of the brain is 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 what it was called, but it was you know actually Alzheimer's. We'll see, Doctor Risser, you want to? Well, um, I recently got back from a Alzheimer's conference that this new uh, information from Lilly came out with, and they had some very interesting um, talks about lifestyle factors and things. Um, that are related to having an increased risk of either having the amyloid protein in your brain, having the atrophy, or clinically presenting with Alzheimer's disease. So some of the interesting work um, was on a number of things, but one was sleep and um, the importance of sleep. And some studies actually suggested that people who had poor sleep showed more amyloid and that that was actually... Um, linked to having more amyloid. So the idea that being stressed, not getting enough sleep, not getting enough exercise, not getting enough, you know, good diet, not being um, cognitively cognitively and socially engaged, um, those are all things that have been linked with, with having more Alzheimer's symptoms, having more Alzheimer's pathology. Um, And I think we're starting to understand how these lifestyle factors might be involved in Alzheimer's disease. And and they present an opportunity for people to make changes now, um, to maybe help themselves not progress to Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. How how would changes be, how would you institute changes in your lifestyle in this day's world? Well, I mean, it's, it's difficult. You know, we all have pressures from family and work and... Um, you know, it, it, it is difficult, but I think it's important to um, have a balance of making sure you eat a healthy diet, Mediterranean-centered diet, um, getting enough sleep, and really taking time to take care of your body and your mind. Um, yeah. I think, it, you know, it, it is hard, but I think it's very important, and you've got to sort of invest in your future now by making changes in your life. Thank you. Yeah, I would just 
I would echo that. Um, I'm not a physician, but I have some of the same concerns. And you can imagine working in Alzheimer's disease when you face this day in and day out. Mm-hmm. Not only do you diagnose yourself with it quite frequently, <laughs> but you you start realizing that you know this is your fate too, you or your family. And I'm driving my husband crazy with this right now. But one of the things that the Alzheimer's Association and us against Alzheimer's both have um, have commented on a lot is this research that. Um, Dr. Ristler is talking about, and that is that what's good for your heart is good for your brain. Mm -hmm. And so things that you can do to make sure that you're taking care of your overall health, um, diet, exercise, sleep, um, as well as cognitive engagement. There's a lot of people that will say, you know, I noticed the problem in my loved one as soon as the person retired or as soon as the person, you know, was no longer actively involved. And um, we've recently done a partnership with CNN to show Glenn Campbell's story, the I'll Be Me story. And in that, um, doctor, uh, the doctor who is treating Glenn Campbell is very, very clear that because Glenn stayed very active with his music and his tours and his shows, and, um, and that that actually helped stave off the disease. So I, I try to remind myself what's good for your heart is good for your brain and, and making sure that you stay really cognitively engaged and socially engaged. I don't know um, if my my physician colleague would disagree with this in the statement says I'm not a physician, but I know that's something that I think about for me and my family. Uh, yeah, she agrees. Um, along those same lines, um, I understand that there might be some evidence that statins, um, which are usually um, used to treat uh, plaque buildup in the arteries, may also have a positive effect on um, plaque buildup in the brain. Can you comment on that, doctor? Well, um, you know, the plaque buildup in your arteries is different than right. the plaque that builds up in your brain. But um, there's been some work. I'm not sure that the you know the the jury's in on that, um, but there is a great amount of risk factor of having heart disease and having um, you know vascular types of changes that can really lead to Alzheimer's disease. And many people with Alzheimer's disease have both vascular you know disease in their brain and Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. And and we're still trying to piece together how these things occur at the same time or whether one causes the other. Is that where the stroke connection comes in then? Yeah. And yeah. And, and so pretty much, um, you know, I think that keep taking care of your heart, you know, issues, taking care of your high cholesterol, high blood pressure, keeping that in check can be very beneficial to you. Um, we recently did some work that showed that people who had un um, uncontrolled hypertension so they actually were on medications but it, they still had hypertension mm. were it showed the poorest cognition um, and a higher risk of having pathology in the brain mm. interesting all right randy thanks a lot for the call thank you we, we appreciate it if you want to join the program it's 812-855-0811 in bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 Outside of the Bloomington area, you can also join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. We have another call, and this is Diana from Bloomington. Go ahead. Great. Thank you. Uh, My question is in regards to uh, amyloidosis and if this drug would help uh, eliminate or decrease the plaque, those amyloid plaque proteins from amyloidosis, which is a cousin disease to multiple myeloma, it essentially, those amyloid plaques encase internal organs like the heart and the kidneys, effectively suffocating them or shutting them down or reducing their function. Um, and the reason I ask is more of a personal one. My father passed away from cardiac amyloidosis, and, and interestingly enough, um, mentally he was still sharp as a pack and, and was really concerned that the amyloid proteins would affect his brain, mm-hmm. but in this case they did not. But wondering if this drug or these types of scans might help folks that have amyloidosis as well. Doctor? Um, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not sure that the drugs have been tested for that sort of thing. Um, that would be maybe something to ask Phyllis. But, um, you know, the, the amyloid plaques in your brain and, and, and peripherally are not exactly the same. Um, you know, things that are, they're similar, but they, they aren't exactly the same. So I think... Um, you know, some more work would have to be done on that in order to determine whether it ha- any of these medications have any peripheral effects that might be beneficial. Phyllis? 
Anything to add? Yeah, I echo the same comment. Um, okay. the, the plaques are different. Um, at this point, we don't have any reason to believe that it would help or not help. We just haven't researched yet. All right. Any, any interest uh, from Lily in doing that research? Uh, at this point, um, that's not, uh, that research isn't being conducted yet. Okay. But um, as is typical with any, um, any other disease state, when you, when you get involved with a, what we'll call a mechanism of action, like amyloid, we will explore all sorts of other um, disorders that might be benefited by that particular mechanism of action, whether it be with this drug or a, another similar one. But at this point, we don't have anything planned. Okay, thank you. Uh, so, Lauren and Kelly, could you give us kind of an overview of, of the, the disease in terms of the numbers? You know, how, how prevalent is it around the, the country? Uh, are there hot spots in the United States? Is there, what are the symptoms people should be looking for, those kinds of things? So we don't really break it down necessarily by county or anything, but right now in the United States, there are about 5.4 million Americans living with Alzheimer's disease. And out of that, there's about 200,000 living with early onset Alzheimer's disease, which is anything diagnosed before the age of 65. Mm -hmm. And then you have late onset Alzheimer's disease, which is anything diagnosed um, 65 or older. And that is a lot more common. There are only 200,000 people out of those 5.4 million um, Americans that are living with younger onset. So it's a lot more of a rare form of Alzheimer's disease. Um, but we're kind of looking at right now, um, the Alzheimer's Association releases the Alzheimer's Association 2015 facts and figures this year in May, which you can find on our website. But that really talks about things like prevalence and caregiving issues. And so we're looking by about 2050 to have about 16 million Americans living with Alzheimer's disease instead of that 5.4 million that we see right now. Um, there are actually 10 warning signs, and we have different educational programs that you can attend to learn about our 10 warning signs. Um, there are some different things. Um, yeah, if you yeah go ahead and run down go, there. Run we want to hear those. Okay, absolutely. <laughs> We're all ears. <laughs> um, the I will have to look for those. Okay. Oh, okay. I can list a couple of them sure. off. Yeah. Um, there are some things that people don't maybe necessarily think of. There's actually changes to your vision if you have Alzheimer's disease. So trouble with depth perception, trouble with... Um, Determining colors, if you see light yellow and light blue and light green, those might all look the same to someone with Alzheimer's disease. A big piece of um, typical aging versus Alzheimer's disease, with typical aging, if you lose your car keys, but then you're able to retrace your steps and go back, that's a really good sign and think, where was I? And go back to those places. Whereas someone with Alzheimer's disease, if you lose your car keys, you won't even know where to look for your car keys. So being able to retrace your steps is a great thing. If you're not able to do that, that's definitely a big warning sign of Alzheimer's disease. Um, trouble with daily tasks, things you've always done. So balancing a checkbook, um, paying your bills, all those things if you're having trouble. Um, or maybe your mom always made the same recipe every year on Thanksgiving, and now she can't make that with the recipe in front of her. That's a big warning sign as well. Um, changes in mood and personality are also warning signs as well. Um, challenges in planning or solving problems. Um, familiar tasks like we talked about. Um, confusion with time or place is a big one as well. When you think about that, to be able to think, okay, you know, about what time of the day is it right now, you have to be able to go back and think, well, have I eaten breakfast? And what have I done today? And if you can't put that together, then you're going to have a really difficult time. And so that's a warning sign as well. Alzheimer's disease first affects your short-term memory, and then it affects your long-term memory, which plays into that warning sign as well because people are regressing through the disease. Um, they might think, my grandmother had Alzheimer's disease and she lived with my family when I was growing up. And she would say things like, well, do my parents know I'm here? And her parents had been deceased for you know 20 years or however long before that. Um, other warning signs are new problems with words and speaking or writing. Um, people with dementia typically have a really difficult time in a large group of people. 
They have to tune out all the background noise that's going on around them. They have to focus a lot on the person that's talking. They themselves might stop in the middle of saying something and not know how to continue or how to go on, um, which can be really challenging, or just repeating themselves over and over, which is a very frequent warning sign that people typically see. Decreased or poor judgment is also a big one as well. And sadly, a lot of that has to do with monetary decisions, which is really sad. Um, a lot of people are subject to financial problems. There's people out there buying brand new cars with Alzheimer's disease. Um, I was actually delivering an education program in a different part of the state, and I had a lady caring for her husband with the disease. And she was really concerned about what if there's some kind of an emergency situation? What is, what is he going to do if something happens to me? So she decided to ask him, you know, if you found me dead on the floor, what would you do? And he said, well, I would take you to the backyard and I would bury you because that's what made sense to him. And so that's an example of that poor judgment and reasoning that's also a warning sign of Alzheimer's disease. Withdrawal from work or social activities is another one. Um, when someone's in the early stage of Alzheimer's disease, they know that they're having trouble. Sometimes we think that they're in this bubble and they're kind of not aware of that, but they are aware. And so sometimes people withdraw because that's a really difficult thing for them to cope with. And then the last warning sign is changes in mood and personality. And that can happen because Alzheimer's disease affects the entire brain. So it affects the part of your brain that controls your mood and personality, but also because you are aware of those changes until you get to the middle stages and then you're not aware that you're having those troubles anymore. Mm -hmm. right. I remember I, we've had um, several people in my life with Alzheimer's over the years and um, long periods of crying, just weeping, weeping, weeping. It's, it's very sad, very difficult for all concerned. It is definitely really difficult for people. And for people with Alzheimer's disease, their world doesn't make sense to them anymore. And so it affects their entire brain. It affects all of their functions. And they're just trying to make sense of things. Mm -hmm. And so that's why sometimes people accuse others of stealing or infidelity, because they're trying to process things in a way that makes sense to oh, them. Sure. Mm -hmm. sure. I wanted to follow up on something she was talking about, about the visual changes um, in Alzheimer's disease. Um, we've actually done some work at Indiana University, and others have as well, on the sensory changes in mm -hmm. Alzheimer's disease, even in people at risk. Um, so I, I don't know, you know, about a year ago, somebody there was an article that said, oh, if you can't smell peanut butter, you're going to get Alzheimer's disease, which is probably not true. But <laughs> um, but there are changes in smell. There are changes in vision. There are changes in hearing. And we're running some studies to see how early these changes might happen and whether or not they might be um, markers mm -hmm. for the buildup mm -hmm. of this pathology. Um, and that's a study we're running at Indiana University. That's an amazing and fascinating time in the research of this disease, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've got several callers. All right, callers. All right. We, yeah, we have three callers who are waiting to talk to us now. So Marty is calling. And Marty, are you really calling from Florida? Yeah, from Florida. Okay, go ahead. Uh, what other diagnostic techniques besides PET scans are there that are effective in screening for potential Alzheimer's? onset? Well, um, the PET scans are the primary uh, type of scan that's used for screening for Alzheimer's disease. And at this point, it's not really screening for Alzheimer's as much as screening for having the amyloid pathology. Um, you know, you can have the amyloid pathology and not have clinical symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. Um, other types of scans that are used, one measures um, the amount of uh, glucose utilization in your brain, so essentially how much your brain is using sugar, which is reflective of how active it is. Um, and in addition, then you can use um, magnetic resonance imaging, MRI, to actually look at the brain and see whether certain structures are shrinking over time. And these are all clues that an Alzheimer's might be happening. All right, Marty. Thanks, Marty. Glad you're listening you. way down in Florida. Right. Okay. Thanks a lot. We have uh, another caller. It's Brenda from Bloomington. Brenda? Yes. I remember my grandmother was described as having hardening of the arteries. 
uh, and that was in the 1940s and 50s. I seem to recall that Alzheimer's was not a word that I even heard until the late 1970s. Was hardening the arteries actually a rather accurate description of what was happening to a person and that then has uh, been called Alzheimer's? Well, Alzheimer's disease actually affects your whole brain. Um, So, you know, the amyloid that we've been talking about actually does build up not just in your arteries, but all throughout your brain. But one of the things it does do is build up in the arteries. Um, And this can lead to problems with blood flow in the brain. Um, But that was a term I think used historically when people didn't really know what the disease was. I mean, it could have been Alzheimer's. It could have been a different type of dementia. Um, And, you know, nowadays we're, I think, a bit better at diagnosing the specific Mm. pathologies and the types of dementia um, that people present with. All right. And our uh, last call, at least uh, probably for the program, is John. John from uh, Bloomington Hospital Foundation. John, thanks for calling. My pleasure. Thanks. Uh, it's been interesting to uh, hear the conversation. Um, I just wanted to share um, some of the resources that are available locally. And I apologize. I haven't been able to listen to the entire program, so I'm not sure to the extent you've already covered this. But uh, um, the Alzheimer's Resource Service at the hospital, which is a completely free service um, that supports caregivers as well as those afflicted with Alzheimer's and early onset dementia. Just a couple of facts here. 5.3 million Americans diagnosed, these are 2012 numbers, 110,000 Hoosiers, 7,600 in our hospital's 11 county service area, and 1,800 people in Monroe County are afflicted with this disease. Um, one in three seniors dies with Alzheimer's or some other form of dementia. And since 2000, the deaths uh, of folks in our state is up 74%. You know, as we've talked about, it's fatal and cannot be prevented, although some, uh, the research that's coming out of Lilly recently, their announcement, is certainly encouraging. Um, but I wanted to share uh, the information for the Alzheimer's Resource Service at the hospital. Again, I said it's a free, a completely free service to those in our 11-county service area. Um, Dana Thompson is the executive director of that service area. And uh, I'd like to give out her phone number if that's okay. Sure, that's great. Listening. We appreciate it. 812-353-299. Again, it's 812-353-929. Okay, we're so, missing the last four numbers. Yeah. Do that one more time. Yeah, sorry. It's 9299. 99, okay. Okay. Yeah, 9299. And Dana runs support groups. Um, she's tried to get out into the uh, more rural areas. Um, she does a, a dementia simulation for communities mm-hmm. and businesses. Um, a really interesting mm-hmm. uh, resource that she offers where people can actually wear some goggles and some sensory deprivation earphones and goggles that actually give caregivers a sense for what it's like mm-hmm. to uh, have some of the, the, uh, the symptoms of Alzheimer's. So um, I really encourage, Dana's a pro, and okay. she's yep. a superstar in our community with this with this issue. So I want to make sure folks have her name and number. Okay. And then at the Hospital Foundation, we are we are working on a uh, a mini campaign to to raise some funds to help the expansion of that. So, um, John, we're out of time. You know, I'm so sorry. We have to we have to go. Right. Thank you for all the great information. Hey, John, thanks. We really appreciate that. And I, I know Dana, she is a pro. Uh, really quickly, the walk, when is, when is the walk? Yes, the walk is coming up on Sunday, September 13th. So it's not too far away now. Okay, well, thank you. We are out of time. I want to thank Kelly Litster, Lauren Lay, Dr. Shannon Rissischer, and Phyllis Farrell for being here with us. For producer Alex, Alexander McCall, Andrew Dodlin, engineer Mike Pashkash, and Tyler Andrews, and Mary Catherine Carmichael. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, 
addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu.